0: it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been generously sponsored. Le'ili Nishmas Reb Yosef ben Yehuda Handelsman a very close chassid of the Lev Simcha, whose family continues in his legacy. And uh, this is in honor of the 30th yard site of Reb Simcha Malter, the Ger Rebbe, the Lev Simcha, which was uh, yesterday, just yesterday, close enough to the yard site. It's the general yard site weekend, I guess we could say, uh, the seventh day of Tammuz, and it's the 30th one, so it's a special occasion. I always felt that... that um, with the father as someone as the Imre Emis, the great Gera Rebbe, the leader of Polish Jewry, and um, his older brother, the Beis Yisrael, or Yisrael Alter, the popular and charismatic uh, Rebbe of the rebuilding after the war. Um, So I feel like that in his earlier years, the Lev Simcha was sometimes overshadowed by these two, you know, larger-than-life personalities. So I think it would be historical justice to, you know, talk a little bit about how he was an important leader during a time that I title of growth and consolidation. Um, In other words, his father was in the old world, the world of Poland, the empire. And his brother, the Beis Yisrael, was the generation of rebuilding. And the Lev Simcha oversaw during this age of fantastic um, demographic growth consolidating the gains of rebuilding and confronting the challenges that come with growth and consolidation and that type of leadership uh, mode. And that's, uh, I think, also a unique place in history. I want to start off with something from, I guess, would say out of left field. I was on on a trip in Paris. It was not a group. There haven't been any groups who requested uh, me to guide them in Paris yet even though there's loads of Jewish history there, so I'd be happy to. Um, I happened to be there on vacation, and I went into a kosher bakery in the old, old Jewish neighborhood part of town. It's not not where the Jews live today, but there's an old Haimisha bakery that's still there, a couple of other Jewish stores. And in this old, old, really good bakery, Great Eclairs, it was a great great bakery, croissants and whatever it is, and uh, baguettes, um, so over there there's this big, huge, prominent picture of the Lev Simcha. And it made me stop. It took a double take. Why in the world is there this big, huge, prominent picture of the Lev Simcha? And these type of places, when you go around the world, you expect to see a picture of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. You expect to see a picture of, um, of uh, I don't know, the Baba Sali or you know something like that. You don't expect to see the Lev Simcha. And I realized, of course, that the Lev Simcha had lived in a Paris suburb for several years, and he probably patronized this bakery in the 1950s. It was an old, old bakery. And therefore, this bakery was probably proud of the fact that he was there. And they put up this picture of him, and it made me realize how unique the Lev Simcha was in the fact that he lived in France for a couple of years in Antwerp. He had quite an interesting life. Uh, way before he became the rabbi, and of course his years as rabbi were quite uh, active as well, both internally within the Geruch Hasidic community and externally uh, for the world. Um, and uh, it, it, quite an interesting life. He has, there's a book in English uh, from the summit, The Lev Simcha, of Simcha Bonam Alter, the fifth Gera rabbi, is over 500-page book Um it's actually, this 500 page book is actually just a brief summary of a three volume work in Hebrew, Libam Shel Yisrael. That comes from Lev Simchas, Libam Shel Yisrael. Um, not every Rebbe gets such a biography written about them, so he definitely led a very interesting life. It was also a very long life, 94 years, and it, he has this time period in Poland a period of time in in pre-state palestine um, he lives like i said for a time in paris and antwerp he then comes back to israel um, as uh, before he is rebbe then he's in israel as as the rebbe later on in his life he had a stroke and and and, and the last several years of his life um, he lived like that with that limitation I um, mean, relatively short time, from those 94 years, a relatively short time as a rebel, only last 15 years of his life, of which uh, approximately half he had sustained the stroke, which basically incapacitated him, and he was not able to really lead uh, the community as actively or at all, really, uh, um, that like he had in his first years as Rebbe. So we're talking about a relatively short time, and I'm going to try to approach it chronologically, starting from his early years in Poland. He's born in 1898 in Gier, and his father names him Simcha Bunim, uh, named for the Rebbe of Pshischa, Rebbe Simcha Bunim of Pshischa, and the Emreymes said, "I need at least one bunim in my." I think they probably said binim or binim or bunim. However, the Polish chassidim then pronounced it. Um, um, and he, I need one at least one b- bunim in my family. Um, so that's that's who he chose. Um, he was seven years old when his illustrious grandfather the Svatemes passed away. So he knew his grandfather as a young child. He had he had, saw and knew his his um and was characteristic. He developed in his youth a very characteristic trait of uh, many of the Polish uh, Rebbes and sadiqim and Hasidim too, of brevity, silence, not talking a lot. And he used to attribute that, that he learned that uh, attribute from his father, the Emre Emes. Someone once told the Emre uh, answered him, Yo, yo. Uh, which is yes, yes. So the Ger Rebbe would say, the Emreimus would say, why did you say it twice? You could say yes. You don't have to say yes, yes. It doesn't have to be repeated. There's no reason for that. That's the brevity that they taught in in Ger and the legacy of Kotsk and Um The Lev Simcha did not have children for many years. Uh, so he had one daughter who passed away very young, um, but then he didn't subsequently did not have children for many years. Um, he had married his cousin Yotah Hena, who was the daughter of his uncle Reb Nachemiah Alter. Nachemiah Alter was the younger brother of of the Ger Rebbe of the Mayimis, and um, so they they got married in 1915 when when the Lev Simcha, the future Lev Simcha, was 17 years old. This Reb Nechemyah, his father in law and uncle, was a very special man. I discussed him when I had a Ger family episode way back. He was the younger brother, like I said, of the Ger Rebbe. He had married a granddaughter of the great Radziminer Rebbe, not Radziner. That's, that comes from Ishbitz. This is very different. This is Radziminer, another Polish shtetl. The Radziminer, original Radziminer Rebbe was Rabbi Yaakov Aryeh Guterman. Uh, the current Ger of course, is named for him. And... Um, Radzamin was a Polish Hasidic dynasty which was relatively large before the war, and it comes also from Pshischa. Um, so this Reb Nachemy Alter married into that family, and he passed away in the Warsaw Ghetto, and he merited to have a normal burial in the Radziminer Isle in the Warsaw Jewish Cemetery, which we visit on our trips. This Reb Nachemy Alter, again, he's the father-in-law of the late Simcha. He had moved to Palestine and lived there for quite some time, before returning to Poland for health reasons, he had lived there. So he was outside of Poland for many years, uh, lived in Eretz Yisrael, and um, he eventually moved back to Poland, and he, and he settled in Lodz, where he had a rabbinical position until the war's outbreak, and when he escaped the war and passed away during the war. In any event, getting back to his son-in-law, the Leif Simcha, he emerges as a young Torah scholar, and very active in his father's court in Ger, among his many other siblings, most of whom were eventually killed. But the Lev Simcha, when he was 36 years old and he did not have any children, he moves to Palestine. He moves to the land of Israel, 1934. And his moving there was part of some sort of skula to move and merit children. Um, He he, um, would later say that he saw the year prior 1933, Hitler's rise to power in Germany, and he grew fearful of the future of European Jewry. Um, two years later, in fact, in his father's fifth visit. His father, the Ramus, made five visits to um, the land of Israel in the interwar period. Also, quite unique as far as I'm aware, no other rebbe did that many visits. But his father encouraged him to go to the Racham Esterivk Rebbe in uh, in uh, in uh, in uh, in there, in Israel, at the, in, in in Israel at the time, to get a blessing for children, um, he 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 had a his whole move. Besides, for his issue with children, his move had a sense of foreboding about what was developing in Europe with Nazi Germany, and um, he the Leif Simcha even said that he asked his father the Emreimis, why did he not explicit, explicitly instruct people to move. To the land of Israel, he only hinted it. Uh, he encouraged it. He didn't command his followers to go. And the Imramah said, "I don't command them. I don't order them to do. I give good advice, um, you know. And if people who want to follow my advice, they listen. Uh, people who don't follow my advice, I can't force people to go. Um, so, the um, the, uh, the the." In fact, the, the, you know, Eretz Yisrael, there was a connection to from, from Gera already, to, you know, the Imre himself. Like I said, he visited often. In, in, in fact, when the Imre was a child, he dressed up on Purim as an Eretz Yisrael, Dikur Yid. I'm not even sure what type of getup that is, but that's that was his uh, costume. I don't know if there are any pictures of it. Either way, um, he, the Lev Simcha said that one time an Arab Shavuos. Uh, He in Ger, he looked at the thousands of Hasidim who came to Ger to be by his father in the court of Ger, in the or in the courtyard there. And he said, how do we get all of these people to go to Eretz Yisrael? That's a very interesting perspective. Um, It has to do with the fact that the Leif Simcha was already in business and he had... Business connections in Germany, so he understood a little bit more what was going on in Germany at the time. Um, so uh, he he uh, you know he had that sense of, of foreboding. Um, in any case, so he he um, he um, he came, moved back to Poland after a few years of being there. Um, and it was um, a result of his, he had helped out some family issues. Um, while he was in Poland, his only two children were born when he was back in Poland. 1938, he moves back and his daughter and was born. His son, who later became the rabbi, was born. And then when he's there, when the war breaks out, so because he had lived in, in Palestine, he um, was the one who was one of the main key players in organizing his father's escape, and he was able to escape with his father and uh, some family members and bring them to, um, to, uh, to, uh, to the land of Israel, to Palestine, the beginning of the war. It's interesting because it ties to something he later spoke about at the end of his life. Um, he, of course, pioneered the study of Talmud Yerushalmi in a systematic fashion, the dafyaimi in Talmud Yerushalmi, the same way they have dafyaimi in Talmud Bavli. And he said that he always had a love for the Torah of Eretz Yisrael, which he believed the Talmud Yerushalmi was, and that, that it personifies the, the uh, you know, that's the product of Yerushalmi, that's the product of the land of Israel. And when he raised the idea of Talmud Rishonim at the 1980 Knessia Gedaila of a good in Yerushalayim, the sixth and last Knessia Gedaila, he said that those who live outside the land of Israel should make more of an effort because they need to connect more to the Torah of of, uh, of the land of Israel. So he settled there and he engaged in real estate. Um, he bought up a lot of you know land in the Yishuv. He invested. Um, in the area of Herzliya today, Herzliya Pituach, um, he, he became quite wealthy as a result. He purchased a piece of property that t- was int- he intended to be a religious resort area of some sort. It um, ultimately became a yeshuv today that's known as Arsuf, which is right near Herzliya on the beach. It's one of the most expensive places in Israel today. He probably made much more money. Uh, in the way that it became Arsuf, and, and instead of it becoming a, a religious uh, resort town. Um, he um, he. Parenthetically, his namesake, Rebunam of was a businessman as well, a, a merchant and later a pharmacist, and the Alter family in Poland was in business too. They invested in railroads and real estate, so... It's not that unheard of that a member of the Gera family would have been in business. It's not crazy. In fact, the 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 uh, some some Litvaks used a pejorative uh, 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 you know, name-calling that they used to call him Revbunim Soicher, Revbunim the merchant, as if that's a criticism. You see, if you're a Litvak, the worst type of critique you can come up with someone is that he works for a living and made some money. So they used that as this, you know, Way that he, like look he 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 works oh, oh my god either way so um, uh, he plays a crucial role in his father's escape from Poland um, and uh, here they are a couple of children left of the Emre Emes uh, most of their family is wiped out siblings get killed he's one of the only children left of the Rebbe there's almost no grandchildren of the Ger Rebbe the Emre Emes and uh, and this is this is how they're you know about to rebuild. Emramus, of course, passes away in 1948 on Shavuos morning, and or Shavuos. I don't know if it was Shavuos morning on Shavuos 1948. And um, the Hasid the few Ger Hasidim who were living in in Palestine at the time, was becoming the state of Israel at the time, were primarily more familiar with the Leiv Simcha. He had lived there since 1934. He was active. The Beis Yisrael was somewhat more unknown. He had been in, uh, in Poland until that time, and many of the the followers of Ger wanted the Lev Simcha to be the Rebbe. But the Lev Simcha would not hear of that. You know, it was his older brother, who had lost his family in the Holocaust, um, and he, he, he the way he gets out of it is he skips town. He moves to France. He leaves. He's gone. The Beis Yisrael is becoming the Rebbe, his younger brother disappears. He went to France. He went to Antwerp. Later on, um, he used to come back quite often to Israel. He, you know, shortly—I don't know—a couple of years later, he. I'm not unclear how many years later he moved back to Israel. Um, but he, um, but his brother, the Israel, assumes the mantle of leadership, and um, so it was an interesting situation. Um, it's interesting that there is a group of survivors who were in France right after the war. They had left the DP camp. They established a small yeshiva, and they heard about the Imre Emesis. They were a group of Geruch Hasidim. They heard about the Imre Emesis passing. They, they were all devastated. And all of a sudden, a few months later, a year later or so, this, someone showed up there in France. And he was this middle-aged man who had a snow-white beard and noble demeanor. And they got all excited. They found out that he's a son of the Imrayemis, and he becomes the leader of this little survivor Polish Jewish Hasidic community. Um, and he encourages some of them to go study in yeshiva and yeshelayim, to go to yeshiva Vasemes, um, and to he built them up. He, you know, so here as a undercover son of the Imrayemis out in France, he was helping many survivors. Um, you know, get their lives started again, get, get, you know, immigrate to the to Israel, to the United States, go to yeshiva, establish families, get jobs. So, you know, it's interesting that he had that, um, and he followed up with them. When he would come back to visit Yerushalayim, he would go look for those Bacharim in the yeshiva yeshivas fasemes, and he would say, oh, I sent him from Paris, I need to make sure he's being taken care of. Is he getting his meals? Does he have a place to sleep? Is he being taken care of? He, like, followed up with them. Those Hassin actually became very close with him a- afterwards. Uh, another interesting story again before he's Rebbe he's living in Antwerp he was in some sort of department store and it's unclear in the story I'm sure they're censoring you know what exactly what he was shopping for he was in it, you know going through the stores in this department store and one of them was like you know some sort of attire or clothing or accessories that was related to females and not males. And someone went over to him and said, hey, it's inappropriate, you know, you're the son of the Ger-Rebbe, you shouldn't be shopping for anything related to women. You know, for any Hasidic Rebbe, it's inappropriate. Uh, He's not a Rebbe, but son of a Rebbe, um, for sure, in Ger, you know, uh, you definitely can't, uh, you know, so, um, he so, you I'll buy it for you, and, and you wait outside, I'll take care of it. And he said, what do you mean? My wife asked me to purchase something, I need to get it for her, I'll take care of it myself, I don't need, I don't need anyone to go ahead and do it for me. He had no airs about him, no, uh, you know, very simplicity. Um, and one last story before he becomes the rebbe. is a neighbor of mine just told this to me the other day, I told him I'm doing an episode on the Lev Simcha, so he told me that um, when he got married, if, you know, he's, talking about it, he's an elderly man, so this must be 50, 60 years ago, he got married, and he went up for his honeymoon to Tveria, to a little Heimish uh, hotel up in Tveria. And who does he see there? Lev Simcha, who wasn't the Lev Simcha yet, he wasn't the Rebbe yet, he was the younger brother of the Gerer the Beis Yisrael. And um, so he knew him. He knew him because he was from a Gera family. So He saw he was there as in uh, his honeymoon, and he saw that he was playing chess in the lobby. So he went over to him and he said, "A chassan is a melech when a melech darvinen. He said, "A chassan is a king, and a king has to win. You better win this game of chess. <laughs> Go ahead and and win." So that's a you know cute anecdote as well. In 1977, the, his older brother, the Beis Yisrael, passes away, and he had no children, right? His, his family was killed in the Holocaust. He remarried, but he did not have children. So um, it goes to his younger brother, and he becomes the Rebbe of Ger at the grand old age of 79. Quite old to become a Rebbe, so it's quite unique when he assumes the mantle of leadership. And it was, like I said, not not for that long, because in the mid-1980s, he suffered a stroke, which pretty much inca- made him incapacitated, and he was not able to function for the last seven or so years of his life. And the de facto leadership passed at that time to his younger half brother Pnei Menachem, and to his son Rabbi Yaakov Aryeh, uh, the alter, uh, the current rabbi. And he passed away. The Leishecha passed away in 1992 at the age of 94. But um, during this time that he was rabbi, he had been like quite. Quiet, unassuming, modest. Uh, at that, uh, until that point, which is an important point, um, and uh, and um, and he now emerges as this very you know strong leader, uh, very charismatic, very strong leader. He he's so he assumed all you know he had been he had been a businessman, he had been a family man, he had been a Talmud Chacham. Now he became a Rebbe, and now he emerges as a leader as well. So he wore many hats throughout his his life. Um, and if the time of the Beis Yisrael can be classified as ambitious building, the Lev Simcha era can be called a period of consolidation, establishing gara communities in the periphery of the country, regulating the lavish spending at weddings, um, and struggling to maintain the Ger dominance in politics at the helm of Eretz Yisrael. So the the he he's at a different time period. It's not rebuilding; it's consolidation, it's growth, it's expansion, and how to deal with the challenges of that. Um, an interesting, just a story to bring out the distinction between him and his brother is that in the early days, uh, when 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 Eretz Yisrael is trying to rebuild Ger, he very often would walk into the Ger-based and share cigars with the Hasidim. Lev Simcha, on the other hand, waged a war against smoking, and he tried to ban it from entirely from within Ger. Um, the Lev Simcha would very often answer the phone himself to Hasidim. Uh, the Lev Simcha was known as a very warm, very soft, very approachable, much more approachable in many ways than the Beis Yisrael was. Um, so it's interesting, the Beis Yisrael was known as very tough, but inside was very warm. The Lev Simcha was known as very warm, but could be very tough when, when needed to be, especially um, when dealing with the outside world. And his trademark became his fruit distribution. He used to give everyone he met fruit. He would, give a, he would always be distributing fruit. Um, I once read a story many years ago about a disabled fellow, a person who was physically disabled, used to get his money. He, he couldn't work. Um, and he used to get uh, live off Bituach Lumi, the Israeli social security, and he got partial funding from them, and he was applying for full disability and and for increased funding, and he went to get a bracha from the Gererba, from the Lev Simcha, to, to that he should be you know successful in his application by the Bituach Lumi, so the Gererba g- uh, gives him a fruit. So he goes home to his family, all his kids, he's going to give, each, each, each kid will get a little piece of this orange. And they sit around the table, there's like nine kids, and they're giving out little tiny pieces of orange to each kid. And, uh, and then just then, the inspector of the Bituach Lumi comes to inspect his home, which is standard practice, to see if they're, you know, they make sure they're, they're not exaggerating their, their poverty and their plight for, to get full disability and he sees that the whole family is sitting around the table to, to seemingly to eat dinner, and they're d- dividing up one little fruit, so the inspector recommended that he get full disability, so the uh, the fu- fruit distribution of the Lev Simcha actually worked in an interesting way. He advised the study of Tanakh. He recommended at the 1980... Um, uh, 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 that, that, the, that the Jewish people adopt um, the study of Dafyayim, of Talmud Yerushalmi, that became kind of his like trademark, and to have a, a calendar for it, and, and to regulate the study of, encourage it, to increase awareness of Yerushalmi. No one had ever brought it up before, no one really studied it. It was an unheard of study, no, it was an unfamiliar thing, and he kind of brought it to the, to the forefront of consciousness, Uh, of of society that today is uh, somewhat taken for granted. He kind of pioneered that. He had very innovative leadership. He encouraged going to sleep early, to not, no smoking, he pioneered the idea of having cheap supermarkets. To have a cheaper supermarket today, till today, Osharad is owned by a Gerachasid. But much before Osharad, uh, it was he, he. It was his idea to, that they should try to get you know lower and you know cheap for people for large families to be able to afford it. Cheap housing, communities in the periphery. He started communities Arad and Ashdod. Again, this is. The you know, housing crisis has not been solved 50 years later. And you see the vision that he had in the 1970s. 1978, he first broached the idea, right after he became Rebbe, that housing prices are high. And again, it's something we take for granted today that there's needs to be solved this housing crisis. He was the first one to get up and establish communities on the periphery to get cheaper housing. Um, to encourage takanas for cheaper weddings, which again is another thing taken for granted, to have discounted sales of the dalad before sukkahs. Again, another thing taken, he pioneered all of these ideas, he even um, said that he, he encar- asked Shlomo Azalman, if Arbach, uh, if they can jointly sign on a proclamation, to uh, to you know the, the, the lulav sellers were, were increasing their prices that they should lower their prices and or else uh, the Leif Simcha threatened that they'll buy one lulav per shul in his community if they don't lower the prices which is what many places did in Europe so he said what's wrong with doing that again if it's too expensive why should people have to spend so much money there was a Guy in Meish Aram who had the monopoly on the on in those days, the unique Polish Hasidic headgear, and he and he was raising prices. So the Lev Simcha said, if the prices of spudiks don't don't go down, I'm going to show up with a hat on Shabbos. I'm not going to wear a spudik. You don't have to wear a spudik. It's it's nice, um, but you know you you can wear something else. Um, so there's all these things about that he's concerned about, the economic concerns, and this has to do with the idea of of, uh, of, 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 of demographic growth, chesed gemachs, um, all these things. Um, and he was already in his 80s when he started uh, becoming the rebbe, and he starts receiving uh, petitioners day and night. He, he, he did not allow there to be hours that, that it's limited to, his gabbai tried to limit the hours, and he said, "What do you mean? That's not. That's not. The, we, we can't post a sign on the door that we limit the hours." He said, oh, "I'll write it in a nice way." He says, "Let me see how you write it." So he had to write it like four times until the rebbe felt that it was written in a respectful way that no one should feel bad about, um, and, uh, and 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 then he approved it. When he went to war against smoking in Ger. He said. Um, he said. He said. He said that he first banned it in the yeshiva. He can't have smoking in the sfasem Yeshiva. yeshivas. So he was well, again this 1970s to not have smoking in the yeshiva was quite uh, rare. It's quite uh, uh, for, you know forward thinking. And then he tried to get it out of the beis medrash. He tried to encourage his chassidim to at least cut down the number of cigarettes they smoke. Um, you know, concerned for their health, concerned for their wallets, concerned for this, this, this thing. And on the outside, he is exhibiting strong leadership in, in many areas, uh, protests against the Mormons establishing a, a base in Yerushalayim. Um, against Hill's, you know Shabbos desecration. He politically was more to the right. He was pro-settlements and he was against the evacuation of Sinai, which is also an interesting trend that he pioneered. Um, he strengthened ties with Chabad and the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and that was a pragmatic uh, political unity against the Litvaks. This was a very rough and challenging time, very tense relationship that he had with Rav Shach. At that time, they didn't see eye to eye on many issues and political issues, I go to Yisrael, which is an interesting story also, um, and others. So he had this, you know, a certain tough demeanor on the outside and the political, you know, certain stubbornness, aggressive, Demanding that he had in the uh, towards the towards the world towards the state towards other uh, others and then he had this very in his own communities, his uh, his leadership was very fatherly very warm um, and leadership of his era was quite unique it was a period of growth consolidation confronting the unique challenges head on to appreciate how unique this was one would be hard pressed to find another world Torah leader who reacted in that fashion and I want to explain there is this time period of rebuilding immediately following the war. And during that rebuilding generation, one can find countless, countless noble examples of many Torah leaders who confronted those challenges and were able to rebuild. But for the next generation, the period of consolidation and growth, it's a different set of challenges. I'm not sure if anyone else uh, had that innovative type of leadership in the very pragmatic, very practical those type of uh, initiatives that he had maybe Rebbe, I'm not sure um, interestingly they, they agreed on a lot of things there you know a certain uh, understanding between the two I think this needs to be seen in a broader perspective of this of this um, recognition that they've entered a new era after the era of rebuilding there's this demographic growth unprecedented urbanization politics institutions there's this consolidating Really closing ranks and understanding the growth of the community. It's a new era in every respect, and he seems to have understood it and had that vision and acted upon it perhaps better than anyone else um, at the time. Um, the Lev Simcha um, was once on vacation in Switzerland, and it was supposed to be relaxing, he was supposed to not be disturbed. There was a close chassid who came, and the Gabai, as many Gabbay's are one to do, threw him out. And Lev Simcha found out. He asked that he be brought back. The guy was insulted. He refused to return. So the Simcha said to the Gabe, I'm not making kiddish and Shabbos until you're able to find him and convince him to come. So his care for each Chassid was apparent. Another occasion, a young Chassid traveled to be with the Lev Simcha for Shabbos. So he noticed. He asked the Gabe to give him an Aliyah. The Gabe said, he's a young guy. He doesn't deserve an Aliyah. Uh, so the lay of Simcha said, no problem, I'll call him up by myself for the Aliyah. Uh, when people would come to him to seek his blessing and advice on medical issues, he'd often advise them to get a second opinion from another doctor, which is, you know, a classic Jewish advice. Many mothers give that advice so once the Rebbe was busy with something, the, the Gabbai answered the phone and it was someone seeking medical advice. So he didn't want to disturb the Rebbe. So the Gabbai said that the Rebbe advises to get a second opinion from another doctor. I think that the version I saw of this story was that this insolent uh, assistant actually mimicked the Rebbe's voice as if he himself was delivering this piece of sage advice. The petitioner later returned to the Rebbe and related that he had followed the Rebbe's advice by going to seek a second opinion, and the Rebbe understood that his Gabbai had told him that without consulting him. And he actually, believe Simcha, recalled every piece of advice that he had dispensed to each particular circumstance. So he reproached this assistant, um, and he said, it doesn't matter if I generally dispense with that counsel or not. It makes a big difference if it's coming from you or from me. I take the responsibility, I think about it, and if I give that advice, then, then that's the advice I give. I don't need you giving that advice. Apparently this Gabbai used to mimic the Lev Simcha's voice on the phone from time to time. And uh, once the Leif Simcha answered the phone himself and he answered a question that a chassid had asked, and the caller thought that it was the notorious Gabbai mimicking the voice of the Rebbe. So he said, come on, just please hand over the phone to the Rebbe so I can ask him myself. So the Rebbe hands the phone to the Gabai and said, I think it's one of your friends on the phone. It says a lot about the relationship and the closeness that the Lev Simcha had with his followers, but it also says much about Gabayim, of great people in general, and the liberties they take with their positions of power, but that's a topic from a, for another time. Um, he, um, he when he had, um, when he he, he, he um, one of the things that the uh, the, the Hasid once came to, the Lev Simcha, and he complained about something someone else was doing. So the Lev Simcha cut him off, he interrupted him in the middle, and he says, you want to complain about another person, you have to bring him here and give him a chance to defend himself because maybe he has a legitimate answer to your complaints. You can't just complain about him and not give him a right to defend himself. One time, one of the Lev Simcha's neighbors related that one of his children... Uh, came home from from school one day and no one was home so the rebbe invited him into his own home and then he taped a note onto the neighbor's door telling him that his, uh, his son is 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 next door by the by the neighbor when the boy's father returned home and he saw the note he felt very bad that he had bothered he had troubled the rebbe so he apologized the Rebbe told him, "What's the big deal? Uh, it's neighborly. I saw a little boy crying. I saw he was hungry. I gave him something to eat. I invited him in. Until my neighbor comes home. What's the big deal? I don't understand." Uh, one time, the Rebbe was scheduled to be somewhere at eight o'clock. Someone came to speak to him, and uh, and uh, and uh, the the, uh, the gabai said, um, "Look, uh, you know, he, the Rebbe really has to go somewhere. So don't don't be long." So when he went in, the Rebbe. You know, spoke to him as if he had all the time in the world. Calmly listened to everything he had to say. And then the rabbi says to his Gabbai, why did you tell him I'm in a hurry? He came to speak to me. He, do, he, needs, he needs to have as much time as he needs. One time when the Geruch community in Ashdod was just starting, so they asked uh, 10, 10 students be chosen from the Yerushalayim Yeshiva, the flagship Yeshiva, to strengthen the branch in Ashdod. So they have the, they they chose 10, you know, appropriate students that were going to travel to Ashdod and they meet with the Rebbe to receive his bracha and after they leave the room he calls over his gabbai and he says I think we should forget about this whole plan. One of these students, I noticed when I gave them the blessing, he has a stutter. And here everyone knows him, they're used to it, they know him, they know the way he speaks and they accept him for who he is. But in Ashdod, no one knows him, and maybe they'll make fun of him. So it, we have to cancel the entire plan. We can't exclude him; he'll feel bad. So we're canceling the whole plan, and they canceled the entire plan of sending these students from Yisrael so that this one boy shouldn't feel bad. Um, he uh, he used to, you know, he uh, he uh, he used to uh, he went to, he used to walk around with a scarf. He used to say that. Um, he said he used to say that a uh, he said he he said he said tzaf is a scarf because amcha yisrael tzrichim parnasa that's the acronym amcha yisrael the people of Israel tzrichim parnasa they need a Parnassa, he said I want to wear that around my neck that's the responsibility that a rebbe has to have towards his. His followers is to be you know, to care for them, to care for everything that they need. Um, one time one of his Hasidim bought him a long shoehorn as a gift. So, so the rabbi said, "What do you need this? For? What do I need this for?" So he says, "You can put on your shoes without bending over." See, so he says, "But a yid has to be ready to bend over for someone else. So it's good to be used to bending over. Um, it's uh, again, characteristic of, 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 of who he was. And uh, it's very, very interesting. And there's countless other stories um, of, of his care, of his warmth that he had. Um, you know, it's a tremendous Talmud Chacham as well. Um, one time he cited something from a sefer. He said, uh, in a sefer, I saw this. So someone said, did the Rebbe mean a specific Lechem Mishnah, a commentary on the Rambam? So he said, what do you mean? I said a sefer. Lechem Mishnah is printed with the Rambam. It's not its own distinct sefer. But if you already mentioned the Lechem Mishnah, you probably meant this Lechem Mishnah. And then he cited, he quoted the entire thing, word for word from memory. And then he said, it obviously could not have been what I meant because I was uh, expressing this idea. And uh, the Lechem Mishnah says this, and he explains the distinction. So he was apt to be a phenomenal Talmud Chacham as well. He once went to Arad before he had a community there. And he was there for a vacation in Arad down in the Negev. Um, and he went to the community synagogue, which only had a 6.30 minyan on Shabbos morning. And so by 9 a.m., the Lev Simcha was already done his Shabbos meal. He was already over 80 years old at this time, so at 9 in the morning, on the summer afterno- summer morning, he sat down for the next nine hours or so until Mincha to study. Uh, so, he, you know, he was diligent in his excuse me in his studying, uh, phenomenal knowledge of, of uh, Torah knowledge and uh, great Torah knowledge, and then he passed away in 1992, and he's buried in the Gerr cave in Harazesim, near um, his brother, the Beis Yisrael, his brother-in-law Arbitcher Levin, the head of the Agudis Yisrael, and uh, that's uh, a little bit of the story of Le'ev Simcha, um, the Simcha Bunim altar of Gerr, the Gerr Rebbe. This is Yehuda Gerr with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites and Podbean or your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.